Coming up this Saturday on Beyond the Vibe, having sold over 50 million records and joined by Susie Quattro. I make musicians want to hit me when I tell them this. My first bass at 14, I said to my dad, musician, we have everything in the house, two pianos, accordion, violin. Dad, I'm playing bass in this new band. Do you have one? He said, sure. And he gave me a 1957 Fender Precision. <laughs> I mean, that's not bad to start with, is it? No, that's not bad. <laughs> when I was a little girl, my mother used to take great delight in telling me, Susan, you're an angel until your halo slips and it becomes a noose. And that's the lyric of the song. And I do believe my mother plucked that out of my book and said, here's the lyrics for this song. Don't forget me. <laughs> I'm impressed with the the amount of glasses in the background there. Oh, that's nothing. <laughs> I've, got, I've got 750 in this wow. room um, from Ray-Ban uh, from 1940 up to the present day. My husband did the collection for me. So it's <laughs> and then sometimes I go out and I think, oh, my God, I didn't bring any glasses. <laughs> that's the way isn't it <laughs> so i'm here today uh, with susie quattro thanks for taking the time to chat with me my pleasure <laughs> um of course uh you know you're originally from detroit um so what was it like growing up for you and kind of what what first attracted you to music oh oh there's a big question um <laughs> Really, nothing, nothing is ever short with me, except for me, I'm short. Um, <laughs> I was uh, from a big family, five kids, and a musical family, it must be said. My father played music all his life. He was a semi-pro musician. And uh, it started, I'm going to short tell this now, five and a half, seeing Elvis Presley on TV for the first time and realizing at five and a half years old that I was going to do what he did. Light bulb moment. It's amazing that young, but it went boing. Uh, then I started playing bongos. Then I started classical piano training. Then I did percussion. I was in the school orchestra, so I read and write percussion and piano and play. And then at 14, again, TV saw the Beatles. And uh, me and one of my four sisters, three sisters, uh, decided that we should start an all-girl band. Yay. So I was 14 and uh, around the phones with everybody and uh, everybody chose an instrument and I didn't speak up quick enough. And so I was told that I was going to be playing bass. So that was another light bulb moment of my life. My dad gave me and I make musicians want to hit me when I tell them this. <laughs> they actually want to beat me up and leave me in the gutter. <laughs> my first bass at 14 i said to my dad musician we have everything in the house two pianos accordion violin harp everything dad i'm playing bass in this new band do you have one he said sure and he gave me a 1957 fender precision <laughs> i mean that's not bad to start with is it no that's not bad <laughs> yeah i know when i tell guys that and they think about the little cheap things their parents got them i had the roll <laughs> The Rolls Royce of bass guitars. So I did not know that there was any choice of bass guitars. All I knew was I was playing bass 
and my dad gave me this so I learned it so big bass little girl not big bass normal bass little girl I didn't know that you had a choice of neck sizes and the weight I had no idea I just learned to play that so it was no mistake that I was going to end up being a good bass player I learned on the best yeah that's quite incredible um you still have that bass with you now don't you you, yeah. I do. It's 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 in my front room. I use it in the studio. And also, when my dad bought the bass, he told me, um, which is obviously 1957, he wasn't sure about buying it. And the <laughs> music shop owner in downtown Detroit said, I'll tell you what, Art. He said, uh, I'm going to sweeten the deal. I'm going to throw in a matching electric mandolin. So I have an electric mandolin, the exact duplicate of the Fender bass. Uh, unbelievable i had the original basement amp you know the the kind with the sort of modeled uh, beige outer cabinet and um so I had the basement and and in its original case just but until i got older in fact the first time i knew it was worth something i digress and then we can go back i was uh, at home i was maybe 16 been in the band two years playing all the time and phone rang and it was uh John Atwistle from The Who. And he said, hi, he introduced himself. He said, listen, I'm down at the music shop in downtown Detroit, and I've just seen your band picture of the Pleasure Seekers, and you've got this Fender Precision. I said, yes. He said, I'd like to buy it from you. I said, right. And he said, I'm going to offer you $1,000. This is 1966. That's a lot of money back mm. then. And I said, no. <laughs> so mine was the bass he didn't get <laughs> that's great um of course you know it didn't just stop with the bass you know you, you you of course went on to to sing as well was there was that a natural choice for you you know on the on the on the show i've interviewed quite a few people and we have so many kind of reluctant singers they kind of end up by default as oh becoming god them. no not me oh my god no. <laughs> I'm the one that should get the hook and pull her off the stage. That's my. <laughs> okay, Susie, you're done now. No, uh, no, no. I was. I, I knew what I was born to do many, many years ago. I have always felt at home on the stage, very much mm. so. Um, as I was learning the bass, I was also told you're going to be the lead singer. So when people say, "Oh my God, how do you do that? Play and sing?" Well. I never thought about it because I was doing both exactly at the same time. Mm. So whatever I developed as a singer and a bass player was done simultaneously. So it was never difficult for me. But um, no, I was always going to be the front man. It's just, it's just where I gravitated to. Just gravitated, you know. And it's not just you that gravitates there. It's when, when you're out there performing with a band and you're just starting off and learning your stuff. The audience gravitates to the front person whether you're the front person or not they gravitate mm. to you and and you feel that you know so that's any any front person or has had the same path as me will tell you that yes you know it yourself but at the same time the audience shows it mm. that's interesting it's like they they kind of tell you as well at that point oh yeah you just know in fact uh, i digress again but you just reminded me of these stories my eldest sister joined the band she's wonderful she's been married seven times don't go there um <laughs> but when she joined the band she's with the first husband who she had three kids with and uh, he quit his job 
and started to manage the band. See, we actually had to make enough money to support three kids. And so we did very well. But I remember going to a gig. He must have been with us about six months. And we didn't have roadies back then because we couldn't afford them. So we carried everything in the girls. you got to see four girls with a ham and organ to believe it. Anyway, um, we went in and we were setting up all the equipment, all that. Leo was setting up the lights. And from out of nowhere, all the girls were on stage. were all setting stuff up, undoing plugs and all that. And he said, you girls realize don't you, that we have to put all the lights on Susie. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny because I had no idea he was going to say that. I didn't ask him to say that. I didn't expect it. But it was said. And there was a real pregnant pause, you know, going, oh, geez. But but that's how it goes. This is how, this is how your future is dictated by something bigger than yourself. Mm. It's interesting. Uh, of course, you were part of that uh, kind of flourishing Detroit rock scene in the late 60s and early 70s, um, breaking out along with the likes of, you know, Alice Cooper, Bob Seger even, uh, and many others. Uh, did you feel like there was kind of something almost brewing at the time, like being in that, in that place? Um, I have had this conversation with many of my colleagues from Detroit, and we all grew up together, you know, we all, we were all weaned on Motown, you know, we all could do the temptation steps, you know, um, <laughs> there's, um, it, it's hard to explain unless you're from Detroit, but we all agree on it, that there's an energy in Detroit, there's a desperation in Detroit, there's a communion between the white and the black music just does this, um, and there's an edge, mm. and you can't fake it. If you're from Detroit, you're from Detroit for the rest of your days. Mm. It's interesting, like there's, you know, throughout the years, there's always been this, you know, like, like even though they're different genres, there's this energy that you get, you know, like you've got your Jack Whites and you've got Eminem even, you know, sure. completely different. Oh my God, go up to the present day, White Stripes, mm. um, uh, Eminem, uh, what's the other one? Oh God, uh, Rock, <laughs> Rock, Kid Rock. I'm trying to go modern now, Kid Rock. I just was sent the other day, because I've got a production company now, and a band got in touch with the all-girl band from Detroit, and they're, they're called the shadows i think and i listened to this stuff i went wow so it goes on and on and on detroit is detroit is detroit <laughs> uh, am, am, am i correct in thinking that uh you, when you were with the pleasure seekers uh, bob seeger did some kind of support slot for you didn't he it was a, like, like i read this and i was like what <laughs> you know? i know it's one of my favorite stories the things that happen when you're when you're starting out uh, we were playing up in, I believe it was Kalamazoo, I think Kalamazoo, and Bob was our support. The Pleasure Seekers, we had our own little following, my all-girl band. Yeah. And um, this, you know, we set up the equipment and all that, and then Bob came in, and he just walks up to the stage. He had his acoustic guitar and a little keyboard set up by himself, and he did a set of original material for an audience that was there to see a rock and roll show. And I remember watching him and I went, and he was older, a little bit older than the rest of us, which was unusual that he hadn't made it already, but he was like maybe three or four years older. And so that stuck out. And I watched him from the side and I went, wow, this guy's got something. Mm. 
original song. Yeah. Mm. It's back to that thing again, doesn't it? Of, uh, you know, the audience knows like who the star is, who's the main. You feel it. No, yeah. you just feel it. I was told by, um, I told a funny story <laughs> this by the guy that directed me in Annie Get Your Gun in 1986. I was in the West End. Big show to do. Big show. Ethel Merman's footsteps, excuse me. Anyway, we, we got talking and he said, I always remember the first time I saw you on Top of the Pops, which is the big like American bandstand in England, okay? And they, they play all the hits. And uh, he said, we were all in this big um, canteen, bunch of us guys, and we were, yep, 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 watching Top of the Pops in the background, a lot of noise, having food and drinks and all that. And you came on. And he said, the entire canteen went quiet that you could hear a pin drop. A pin drop. From volume to quiet, we watched... Your song was over and we started talking. Someone That's a good way to explain it, isn't it? Yeah. He said we had to watch you. So, mm -hmm. so strange. So, and I, I've had this conversation with many other artists who have been in the same place as me in their career. And we've talked about it. And I said, I've asked a question. I said, were you always aware that you had something something i can't even tell you what that is and they all said yeah you kind of know it um and i remember being about eight and doing one of the family shows and my brother was marvelous marvelous when he played the piano you cried he was that good and everybody would either do a song or play the piano or do a sketch with one of the other sisters we all had something to do um and it was a family show and i remember when i got up to do my bit it was a sketch. I think I did hit the road, Jack. That's it. And uh, I remember that everybody went silent again, and they watched me. And I remember my little eight-year-old brain saying, oh, I can hold an audience. Not knowing why I could hold it, <laughs> just realizing deep down that I had that natural ability to make people want to watch. So that goes into your little young psyche. And then as you're growing up in the business, you're doing what you do, you quite naturally develop that as part of your arsenal. Mm. It's interesting. <laughs> um, now, I'm a, I'm a photographer myself. Um, so of course you have that that really iconic shot of you. I believe it's on one of your books as well, where, you know, it's what I'd call like the Susie Quattro look. Obviously you've got, yeah, the leather, the leather jumpsuit theme. And I've got my leather on today in kind of tribute. <laughs> the one time where it's relevant. Um, was, was this kind of a, a thing that was always planned for you? Like, you know, I'm going to kind of go down this road. I'm going to go for this look, do this kind of thing. Because it's kind of become your thing now, as, as I say. The yeah, yeah, sure. It's it's nothing is planned, planned as such. Nothing is written in stone. But um, I was always aware. I was just talking about this earlier today. I I knew quite young, especially when I started the band with my sister. Actually, she started the band, and I was brought into it. Um, that I wasn't like anybody else, and I can't tell you why I wasn't. I just knew it. So consequently, I didn't model myself on anybody. Mm. I just stuck to being 
whatever that thing was that I thought was me. I loved Elvis, you know. Um, I liked his leather, so I took on leather quite early on. I saw the bass players. I liked the way they moved this, that. But I knew that I couldn't see any other person out there that I thought, that's me. Didn't have it. So all the time you're developing, 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 developing. Mickey Mouse saw the band I was in called Cradle. And I was at the back for the first time ever in my entire career since 14 the band changed we brought my little sister in and it was decided we needed to change a pace and we were going to start writing our own material and I became mainly except for a few songs the bass player and uh, that was about 18 months that band I was obviously not happy in that band and Mickey came and saw the band and I got up and did two songs and he offered me a solo contract one week after Electra Records had also seen the band and offered me a solo contract. So I came to England and we did a lot of recording. Obviously, I came over as a singer, songwriter, musician, solo. And we were recording. I was writing. We couldn't quite find. I knew what I wasn't. He knew what I wasn't, but he didn't know what I was. We're trying to find who I was. I finally got a band together because I was going nuts because I'd always played. We did our first big nationwide tour with Slade. I was the opening act. And that crystallized the band. It crystallized me. We were doing all our material. So the Pleasure Seeker front person bass player and the Cradle background bass player came together and Susie Quattro emerged from the ashes and we got Chin and Chapman involved at that point they wrote Can the Can based on um, the gig that they came and watched they saw all my own material and they went ah they got what I was and then Mickey most took me into his office we recorded Can the Can we all knew it felt like a number one the hairs on the back of the neck and Mickey said okay I think you're gonna have a number one what do you want to wear now we need your image and I said, okay, leather. And he said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. And finally, I got my way, as I do. And then he said to me, um, what about a jumpsuit? And I thought, what a good idea. And I tell this on my one-woman show. I could be quite naive about things. I had no idea it was going to be sexy. My thinking was that I jump around a lot on stage. And the jumpsuit <clears throat> would stay in place. So to get to the picture, <clears throat> we're taking the photo session. I'm in my first jumpsuit. I'm on top of a table. The band is <clears throat> draped around me. Photographers, they're very famous photographer, Garrett Mangovitz. Mm -hmm. My song can the can is on in the background. And he's photographing me. And then he this is the pivotal moment. And he said to me, Susie. I want that Susie Quattro look. I didn't know I had one, but I turned and I did that pose. And he went, that's it. So it, it was a pivotal moment where everything came together and that image was formed. And it was me. Then I knew who I was. Is that crazy? I remember doing that. I went, and there I was. <laughs> wow. That's wild. It's like yeah. it's meant to be at that point. Yes. Yeah, and I, I do trust instincts, yeah. Mm. Um, so jumping forward, uh, your, of course, your last release, the latest album, uh, The Devil in Me, uh, which is now in, in contention for, for best album with uh, Planet Rocks, The Rocks Awards. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, many people are saying, you know, it's your best album to date. Uh, you know, lots of plaudits, great reviews, all of these things. Um, did you approach the album any differently this time compared to your previous releases? Yes and no. Um, no Control was 2019, and that was the first album I did writing with my son mm. and being involved with my son. And that was out of the blue. Never expected it in a million years. He just said, I want to write with you, Mom. And I went, okay, what you got? He showed me a few things, and we just were having fun in the studio. We put down three demos. First time we'd worked together and written together. And three songs in, in the studio, I said, we're making an album. And the engineer and my son said, I know. All of a sudden, it was serious. So we made the first album that did brilliantly. It charted. Everybody loved it. And then they took up the option for the next album. And uh, we didn't know when we were going to be able to do it because 220 was full of gigs for me and full of gigs for the band he was working with. And then the lockdown happened. So I said to my son, okay, we don't get depressed about this. Now we have the time to write this out. And then he got his confidence up on that first album. So then he said to me, Mom, you have to trust me on this album. I wouldn't, what do you mean? He said, trust me. I know what this album should be. And half of me was wanted to hit him, you know, or set up the room. And the other half was going, mm, he's very sure of himself. Very sure of himself. So, although I didn't let him, let him take over, I let him lead the way, and that's what he did. What he did was he, having soaked up Susie Quattro since as far back as he could remember, he was at lots of gigs, you know, we even went on the road with us. And he's a fine guitar player, fine writer, very talented guy, and a very good producer. And it's in his DNA. Susie Quattro's in his DNA. So what he wanted to do was take me back to that original feeling of when I went, oh, wow, a candy shop. And all the critics have said, without sounding old-fashioned, he's recaptured that energy level, that uh, that wonderment, you know. Um, mm. What he did was, he made me see me again, brand new. And I don't know how he did it. I don't want to know. Somehow I saw myself through his eyes as if I was just beginning. And that was exciting, you know. So we made we made a great album, and we're now working on the next one. We found a really good way to work together. Really, really works. And like I said, I've never had such critics in my life, never. Is that kind of that dynamic of working with your son? Obviously, you've worked with your family before, but you know, a, a son is. I don't know whether it is. Is it different? Does it feel different? Well, luckily for me, a lot of people ask me that. Luckily for me, I was brought up in a very musical family. Mm. And so therefore I'm used to working with family. Then I came to England and I formed a band and I married my guitar player, family. You know, so for me, it's not a strange jump. Um, for my son, he had to adjust. He found blurred lines. I didn't. Um, what he had to get used to was the fact that when I'm working, relationships don't come into the picture. They just don't. I'm working. I don't care who you are. I'm working. And it's like that. So he had to adjust to that. He's fine with it now. We found a good way to work together. You know, obviously you sometimes have artistic arguments, but if you didn't have those, then something's wrong. You know, because you do, everybody has to question things sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah, you can't agree on everything, Beam. 
you know, it wouldn't be the same. Um, you, you spoke about how, you know, your son had the moment where uh, it was kind of the, you know, I'm, I'm with, you know, you more professionally now, you know, you've kind of flicked that switch. Um, and, and he kind of had the, you know, I'm with Susie Quattro. Did you, did you ever have kind of a similar moment yourself, like earlier in your career, maybe, you know, working with another musician, having the, you know, like, oh, it's this person now? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> like I've kind always of that, a bit in all. Whoever I've met, I've just kind of. I, f I figure they're colleagues of mine, even if they're even way way back when if they're you know I'm the kind of girl that Cradle supported Santana in quite a few shows. We played Detroit with him, and I'm the kind of person that I went on stage and I hip bumped the Congo player off the Congo and started playing. So. It, that's kind of like my character. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm fans of lots of people, but not in, not that way. Not that way. It's 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 a strange thing I have. I don't know what it is. I, I just feel uh, I feel fine with everybody. I'll jam with anybody. Hmm. That's a good way to be. I think. Yeah. There was a there was a funny story. I was at uh, in Detroit. We were playing at Arthur's, which is a big club, and we were doing the last set of the night, which is about midnight. And in came David Ruffin, Temptations, and uh, Ted Nugent to, to come see the show. So they wanted to jam with the all-girl band. So I said, I'm up for it. The drummer said, I'm up for it. My sister left the stage on guitar. My other sister on piano left the stage. It was me. Um, somebody stayed up there. Somebody else got a piano. I can't remember who. Ted and David Ruffian and the drummer. And we, and we jammed. And uh, I'd never done it before. We came off stage and Ted Nugent said to me, where did you learn to jam like that? And I said, I didn't know I could. <laughs> so, you know, I'm one of those, if something is kind of scary, you just rise to it. Yes. Grab it by the horns and go. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I'm, I, you know, I did. I remember thinking, I'm doing this. I'm jamming with you. You know, it was fantastic. Fantastic. Mm, I think you can take that kind of nervous energy and kind of turn it into something. Oh, yeah. Mm. You shouldn't be scared. But I'm also smart enough not to take on something I can't do. Mm. I know what I can do and what I can't do. Mm. Um, with the with the title track "Devil in Me," uh, can you talk a bit about what the what the song's about and, and like the meaning behind it? Sure, there's a there's a good story to that. Um, I had that title. I said it to my son, and he said, "Oh my God, Mom, that's a good title for the next time." I said, "It is." I made a folder, "The Devil in Me," and um, as we were writing for this album, that was the folder, and I had this set of lyrics, "The Devil in Me." And for some reason, which is unlike me, I couldn't find the beginning of a song to go around these lyrics. I don't usually write the lyrics first. I usually write them, maybe a line here and a title in this, and they kind of happen side by side. But these were written. And I, I was like, oh, God. So I just put it in my book, put it in my lyric book and left it there. Then my son came to me and he said, Mom, we got one more track to do for the album and then we're done. We've provided all the tracks. He said, I have this idea. 
Tell me what you think. And he played me a riff on the on the uh, machine. I said, ooh, I like that. Send it to my computer. So I came inside. He stayed outside at the, at the demo studio. And I sat here with my computer playing the track, my acoustic bass, and my song lyric book. And what I do is when he sends me a riff, I go through and I play, find the feel bass-wise, which always connects to my vocal. You know, da -da -da -da, find it, find it, find it. And as I'm finding it, I'm flicking through my lyric book trying to find instinctually a line or a title to jump out and say I belong on this song flicking through playing flicking through playing, waiting for it to happen the lyric for the devil in me fell out of my book and it landed face up on my keyboard I went oh, okay <laughs> okay honestly I do believe things like this happen and um I just looked at it and I went right and I started to look at the lyrics, play it with the song and sing it and it literally fell out of my mouth as it should be. And the, the, the back story of that is when I was a little girl, my mother used to take great delight in telling me, Susan, you're an angel until your halo slips and it becomes a noose. And that's the lyric of the song. And I do believe my mother plucked that out of my book and said, here's the lyrics for this song. Don't forget me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally landing in front of you. It can't be. Unbelievable. No, honestly, it, it just went boom. I went, mm. okay, oh, hello. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Things <laughs> like that do. It seems like you have a lot of moments like that where it's like, as we went back to earlier, it's this kind of meant-to-be moment. It's like I do it's have supposed that. to happen, yeah. I do have that in my in my life, and I'm a firm believer in it. Mm. So when it when it comes at me, I I take it on board. You know, I do believe it. We we all have these instincts. You know, I'm not unusual. We all have them. A lot of people choose to ignore them. I mean, for instance, when opportunity knocks on your door, you better let it in. Mm. First, you got to recognize that it's knocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, acting was kind of one of my personal first loves for me. It was something I kind of started off doing. Um, of course, you know, you were in Happy Days, uh, you know, and all that. Um, am I am I correct in thinking it's kind of like that? That was a show that that, that kind of made Americans aware of you. Like that, it was kind of backwards, wasn't it? Like obviously, you had yes. <laughs> the uk first yeah yeah it was kind of backwards um i i did start touring back in america with my uk band with number ones all around the world in 74 they, mm. they definitely knew who i was i toured everywhere i did the uh welcome to my nightmare tour 75 we did 85 shows after 30 of my own in america everybody knew who i was mm. but there was a little space of the hits of the glam era, which I was unfortunately part of, even though I was rock and roll, but I, I, my hit started happening in that era because even Mike Chapman says I was never glam, never was, uh, but it happened in that era. So I got logged, locked in with that. Um, a lot of that little area, there wasn't, the singles weren't hitting in America. My albums were doing better than singles. People knew who I was, definitely. I did a lot of tours there. But then Happy Days happened, and I became a household name because Happy Days was a number one TV show. So my character, um, Leather Tuscadero, received the second most fan mail after Henry. 
the funds, which is which is amazing. So yeah, that that ha- I don't know why it happened that way, but it did. You discovered Susie Quattro through Leather Toscadero, but mm. that's okay because it was me playing her. <laughs> so however you got there, you got there in the end. Mm. Did you like like when when this opportunity approach? I mean, you've talked about when you get these chances, you kind of you grab them, you take them. Obviously, you know, acting's it's different to to music. Did it just kind of present itself? You know, just I, I I'm an artiste, I have to say. Mm. Um, and I'm a communicator, I'm a creator, and I'm an entertainer. That's who I am. Uh, and I don't like just being boxed into one thing. So I always knew I could act. I knew it from a very young age. Um, I knew I could write. I'm now about to publish my sixth book. I knew I could be a DJ. I was on radio, BBC Radio 2 for 15 years. Um, I did West End. Uh, I've acted in many different kinds of things. So I'm an artiste. And when this opportunity came to me, I was in Japan on tour. I toured there a lot. And uh, they, the, the guy that called me was my publicist before uh, famous Toby Mamus and he said you have to fly out audition for the show I said what show and he told me I said I don't know he said believe me you want to do it so I thought okay he's recommending I do I went out there and auditioned and I got the show and it turned into three seasons so I don't know I just I knew I should do it Mm. just like when the offer for Annie Get Your Gun came up I had a whole tour of Australia booked and I said I'm not missing this chance no, that tour will still be there. This role will not still be there. So yeah, I do kind of, I do take chances. I do like to stretch, you know. Mm. Um, of course, you've you've toured and gigged with many like incredible bands and musicians over the years. You know, Thin Lizzy, Slade, Alice Cooper. Um, for yourself, well, you've, you know, you've even supported yourself with uh, with QSP. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how that that even works. So I don't. I haven't spoken to any musicians that support themselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's only me that can do that. I tell you, it's a Gemini thing. <laughs> um, do you have like? I know it's like such an incredible career, but do, do you have uh, any highlights that really stick out to you as like, you know, when, when you look back now, you think, oh, yeah, that, that was, that was well, a there's, good one. There's, there's, it's hard to pick out after, you know, I've been mm. in the business 58 years now. Um, it's always like kind of like the first of everything, you know, like the first number one, that's amazing. Um, your first acting job, amazing. Your first musical, amazing. Um, I remember turning 50 and I played the biggest outdoor venue in Germany called the Velbuna to 22,000 people for my birthday. That was pretty amazing. Um, my documentary coming out in 2019, wow. Uh, but I think getting the honorary doctor of music at Cambridge University in 2016, dressed in the cap and gown. That's hard to beat. I'm officially Dr. Quattro. That's very cool. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What what was behind, you know, obviously we spoke, we touched on there with the, with the QSP supporting yourself. What was kind of the idea behind that? Um, Well, my husband had the idea. Uh, that album came out in 2017. He'd had the idea 10 years previously to put the three of us together. He thought we'd make a good combination. And uh, we were all just busy. Andy was sweet, Don was Slade, me was Susie Quattro. And finally we got it together, we made the album, and good album. And uh, I was about to do a tour of Australia, and my husband said, what about 
QSP supports. I went, wow, I did 37 songs a night. <laughs> Am I nuts? <laughs> Am I completely nuts? I would go out as the bass player singer with QSP, change into my suit and come out as me. I mean, that's that's got to be schizophrenia. Um, but it was a very, very good lineup very very good lineup we made a great album we might do another one they're going to be coming on uh at my royal Albert hall show on april the 20th and as a guest so my son's coming on too um good people we we really we did fit well together even don you know the drummer from slade he said mm. he said playing with you it's like i played with you my entire life so we did connect bass and drums which is important you know and, and we might do another one such a good album but I mean even Andy kept saying to me wow Susie can you do it I said yes but that's a lot of singing jeez 37 songs and are you kidding me I gotta love I gotta love what I do to do that don't I I know it's I mean when I read this I thought you know I, I don't think anybody else has done it you know I'm going to no. have to look no, really hard. No, this is first. I support myself. <laughs> that's, that's classic. Oh, my God. That is classic. I mean, I, I'd have been tempted to have the poster of, you know, Susie Quattro supported by... Susie Quattro. Quattro. <laughs> I have the poster in my gym. <laughs> the Land of Forever Encore Susie Quattro supported by QSP. Susie Quattro, Andy Scott, that people must be going, what? <laughs> excellent excellent stuff you can't write it can you <laughs> um finally uh, a question i always kind of i like to end on uh, it's a bit of a hypothetical one uh if you could tour with one band from the past and one band from the present who would they be if i could tour tour gig it could be an incredible gig You've got your time travel device, so you can go and fetch anyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, oh, well, I would have liked to have been the bass player in Elvis's first band with Scotty Moore. Mm. I would have had a three-quarter stand-up from the past. And now, Keen. <laughs> I'd like to play with Keen actually if it don't have to be too modern there are two bands that because lots of times I would jam along with the band and two bands only that I jammed with that I would play identical bass lines without knowing it I find myself playing the same bass lines Santana was one of them and the other one was uh, Otis Redding's original band that he did all his records with. And I met uh, Steve Cropper, who was the guitar player. We were at an award ceremony together. And I said, I told the story to him. And I said, Steve, you know, I play along to Don, to, to, um, to, to the bass lines on your records. And I played the same thing. And Steve said, well, there's a reason for that. Donald Duck Dunn. I said, what's the reason? He said, they're correct. <laughs> <laughs> I take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So, I mean, this is going to be a, a crazy gig. So we've got, I'm correct to think we've got Elvis. We've got yourself. And are, are we going to go with like Santana as well? I mean, this is a... Santana and, um, and the Stack Soul Band. Oh! Oh, what a gig. 
Get your tickets out, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for my pleasure. I wish you all the best with with your tour. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much. much. Okay, bye.